You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Spiritualism, Madame Blavatsky, and Theosophy. This is Lecture 8, entitled Ancient Wisdom and the Heralding of the Christ Impulse, given in Cologne on May 8, 1912. The meeting today is an occasion that demands an introduction to our studies. It is the day known in the Theosophical Movement as White Lotus Day, commemorating the yearly anniversary of the day on which Madame Helena Petrovna Blavatsky, the founder of the present Theosophical Movement, left the physical plane. Very little effort is needed to touch a chord in every soul present here today in order to evoke feelings of admiration, veneration, and gratitude toward the individuality who came to the earth in Helena Petrovna Blavatsky. By devoting herself to what she clearly realized to be the task of the modern age, she inspired people to turn their minds again to the ancient holy mysteries from which all the forces and impulses needed for human spiritual development have proceeded. I feel in full accord with the individuality of H. P. Blavatsky if above all today a few words of plain truth are spoken about her. It was characteristic of her that when she was fully herself, she desired, above everything else, to be true. Therefore we can best honor her when we direct our grateful thoughts to her and speak a few words of unvarnished truth. In her being as a whole, in her individuality, H. P. Blavatsky revealed what inner strength, what a powerful impulse was inherent in the spiritual movement we call the Theosophical Movement. To substantiate this, I need only refer to the first of her more important works, titled Isis Unveiled. Confronted with this book, ordinary readers will have the impression of a truly chaotic, bewildering confusion. Those who are aware of the existence of an age-old wisdom, guarded in the mysteries and protected from profane eyes, will have the same impression, yet they know that such wisdom is not acquired by external human effort, but has been kept safe in secret societies. Certainly they will find much that is chaotic in this book, but they will find something else as well. They will find a work that courageously and daringly presents certain secrets of the mysteries to the secular world for the first time. One who understands will be astonished at what an infinite amount of this wisdom has been correctly interpreted and will conclude that only an initiate could do that. Nevertheless, the impression of chaos remains. This may be explained by the following reasoned consideration. The way in which Isis Unveiled is written shows that Madame Blavatsky could not possibly have produced what she had to give to the world out of her own outer personality, out of her own soul. 
the way in which she was incarnated in her physical body, the nature of her intellect, her personal characteristics, and her sympathies and antipathies, show that she could not have written this book unaided. She communicates things that she herself was quite incapable of understanding. Anyone who thinks about this must come to the conclusion that higher spiritual individualities used the body and personality of H. P. Blavatsky to communicate what, according to the needs of the times, had to be inculcated into humanity. Indeed, the impossibility of attributing to her what she has given us is in itself living proof of the fact that those individualities who are connected with the theosophical movement, the masters of wisdom and harmony of feelings, found an instrument in H. P. Blavatsky. Those who see clearly in such matters know that the knowledge did not originate in her, but that it flowed through her from lofty spiritual individualities. Naturally, today is not the appropriate time to speak about these matters in detail. Now the question might arise, and it often does, why did those lofty individualities choose Madame Blavatsky as their instrument? They did so because, in spite of everything, she was the most suitable. Why did the choice not fall upon one of the learned specialists dealing with the science of comparative religion? We need think only of the greatest, most highly respected authority on Oriental religions. The renowned Max Müller and his own pronouncements will tell us why he could not have proclaimed what had to be communicated through the human instrument of Madame Blavatsky. When the religious systems of the East and Madame Blavatsky's expositions of them became known, Müller responded by saying, quote, if somewhere in the street a pig is seen and is grunting, that is not considered very remarkable. But if a human being walks along the street grunting like a pig, that is considered remarkable indeed. Quote. The implication is that one who is not prepared to distort the religious systems of the East in the style of Max Müller is like a person who grunts like a pig. In any case, the comparison does not seem to me very logical. For why should one be astonished when a pig grunts? But if a human being grunts, that would be a fear not everyone would be capable of. Excuse me, a feat not everyone would be capable of. The comparison is rather lame, but that it could be made at all shows clearly enough that Max Müller was not the right personality. So the choice had to fall upon a person of no particular intellectual eminence. This situation naturally had many disadvantages. Thus Madame Blavatsky brought all the sympathy and antipathy of her extremely passionate nature into the great message. She had a strong antipathy to the world conception that springs from the Old and New Testaments. She had a strong antipathy to Judaism and Christianity. But to apprehend the ancient wisdom of humanity in its pure, primal form, one condition is indispensable, namely to face the revelations from the higher worlds in a state of perfect emotional and mental balance. Antipathy and sympathy form a kind of fog before the inner eye. Thus it came about 
that Madame Blavatsky's perception became more and more enveloped in a kind of fog, and her mind remained clear only for so-called purely, in quotes, Aryan traditions. Here she looked into spiritual depths with great clarity, but she became one-sided as a result. So it came about that in her second great work titled The Secret Doctrine, the early Aryan religion was presented in a biased form. Because of this antipathy, to look for anything about the mystery of Sinai or of Golgotha in Blavatsky's writings would be useless. Hence she was led to powers who, with great forcefulness and clarity, could impart all non-Christian wisdom. This is revealed in the wonderful stanzas of Zion, which Madame Blavatsky quotes in The Secret Doctrine. But however wonderful they may be, The Secret Doctrine diverted her from the path of initiation in the physical world implied, although only in a fragmentary way, in Isis unveiled. Bound as she was by a one-sided initiation, Madame Blavatsky could present in the secret doctrine only the aspect of spiritual knowledge inspired by the non-Christian world conception. Thus the secret doctrine contains the greatest revelations of this order that humanity was able to receive at the time. It contains themes that may also be found in other writings, namely in the so-called Mahatma letters of the Masters of Wisdom and Harmony of Feelings. In these, again, we may find some of the greatest wisdom given to humankind. But there are other sections of the secret doctrine, for instance, those dealing in great detail with the quantum theory. Anyone who truly understands must reckon the stanzas of Zion and the letters of the Masters among the highest revelations vouchsafed to humanity. But they must also conclude from the extensive sections dealing with the quantum theory that they are the work of a person incapable of laying down her pen and suffering from a mania for writing down whatever came into her head. Then there are other sections where a deeply rooted passionate nature discourses on scientific topics without reliable knowledge of the subject. Thus the secret doctrine is a weird mixture of themes, some of which should be eliminated, while others contain the highest wisdom. All of this becomes comprehensible when we consider what was said by one of H. P. Blavatsky's friends, who had deep insight into her character. He said that Madame Blavatsky was really a threefold phenomenon. First, she was a dumpy, plain woman with a magical mind and a passionate nature, always losing her temper. To be sure, she was good-natured, affectionate, and compassionate, but she was certainly not what one calls a gifted woman. Secondly, when the great truths became articulated through her, she was the pupil of the great masters. Then her facial expression and her gestures changed. She became a different person and the spiritual worlds spoke through her. Finally, there was a third awe-inspiring, supreme, regal figure. This occurred in the rare moments when the masters themselves spoke through her. Lovers of truth will always carefully distinguish in Madame Blavatsky's works what is essential and what is not. No greater service could be rendered to the one who is in our thoughts today 
than to look at her in the light of truth. No greater service could be done to her than to lead the theosophical movement in the light of truth. Naturally, in the beginning of the theosophical movement, had to follow a particular course. Let me read that again. Naturally, in the beginning, the theosophical movement had to follow a particular course. But now it has become a matter of great importance that another stream should flow into the movement. It has become necessary to add to the theosophical movement the stream that since the 13th century has been flowing from occult sources, sources to which Madame Blavatsky had no access. So today we are doing full justice to the aims of the theosophical movement, not only by recognizing the religious creeds and world conceptions of the East, but by adding to them those that came to expression in the revelations of Sinai and in the mystery of Golgotha. And perhaps today it may be permissible to ask whether the scope of the theosophical movement as a whole calls for the addition of what, in the nature of things, could be given at, could not be given at the beginning, whether in fact an extremely questionable kind of specialization should be given out as truth through teaching and dogma. I, for my part, say unreservedly that I know how great a wrong we would be doing to the spirit of H. P. Blavatsky now in the spiritual world if the latter course were taken. I know that it is not opposing but acting in harmony with that spirit if we do what it wants today, namely to add to the theosophical movement what that spirit was unable to give while in the earthly body. And I know I am not speaking against Madame Blavatsky, but in complete harmony with her when I say the one thing I wish for is that our Western conception of the world shall come to its own in this theosophical movement. In recent years, knowledge and truths of many different kinds have become available. Let us assume that in fifty years' time everything will have to be corrected. Let us assume that not one stone will be left upon another in our spiritual edifice as we picture it today, and that in fifty years' time occult investigation will have rectified everything fundamentally. Then my comment would be, perhaps, but one thing will remain and should remain as the object of the main endeavor of our Western theosophical movement, namely that it may truly be said that there was once a theosophical movement whose one ideal in the field of occultism was to establish only what springs from the purest, utterly unsullied sense of truth. Our aim is that this may be said of us. We had better leave things still in doubt unsaid rather than deviate in any way from that course for which a pure sense of truth can take full responsibility before all the spiritual powers. From this, however, something else follows. Someone might feel called upon to ask why we reject this or that. Our answer is that our conception of tolerance although others may have a different idea of it, is that we feel obliged to protect humankind from what could not hold its own before the forum of pure truth. Although our work may be misrepresented, we shall stand firm and try to fulfill our task by rejecting whatever must be rejected if we are to serve our purpose. 
Therefore, when anything conflicts with our sense of truth, we reject it, but only then. We obey no other sentiments or reasons, nor will we indulge in trite phrases about equal rights of opinion, brotherhood, and so on, knowing that the love of people for one another can bear fruit only if it is sincere and true. It is fitting, particularly on this day of commemoration, that we should express this will to be inspired by the purest sense of truth. Since new knowledge has been gained in the way I have indicated, much that can help to explain mysteries of the universe has come to light. Nothing is ever said to discriminate between the great cultures or religious movements of the human race. Has it not been said many times, when considering the first post-Atlantean epoch, with the spiritual culture inspired by the holy rishis, that there we have something spiritually more sublime than anything that has followed it? Neither should we ever think of belittling Buddhism. On the contrary, we emphasize its merits. Knowing it has given humanity benefits, such as Christianity will be able to achieve only in the future. What is of immense importance, however, is that again and again we point to the difference that distinguishes Oriental culture from Western culture. Oriental culture speaks only of individualities who in the course of evolution have passed through several incarnations. For instance, it speaks of the bodhisattvas, describing them as individualities who pass through their human development more quickly than is usual. Thus Oriental culture is concerned only with what as individuality passes from incarnation to incarnation until in a certain incarnation such a bodhisattva becomes a Buddha. When bodhisattvas have become Buddhas, which can happen only on earth, they have advanced so far that they need not descend again into a body of flesh. And and so the further back we go, the more we find interest focused primarily on the individuality and less on the single incarnation. What is really in mind when speaking of the Buddha is not so much the historical Buddha, the Sudhadana prince, but rather a degree of attainment, a rank that other bodhisattvas also attain in the course of their successive lives. In the West, however, it is different. We have lived through an epoch of culture that has nothing to say about the individuality who passes from life to life, but values only the single personality. We speak of Socrates, Plato, Caesar, Goethe, Spinoza, Fichte, Raphael, Michelangelo. We think of them only in the one incarnation. We do not speak of the individuality who goes from incarnation to incarnation, but we speak of the personality. We speak of one Socrates, one Plato, one Goethe, and so on. We speak only of a single life in which the individuality has found expression. Western culture was destined to stress the importance of the single personality, to bring it to vigorous characteristic maturity, and to disregard the individuality passing from life to life. But the time has come when we must again learn gradually to recognize how the eternal individuality passes through the several single personalities. Now we find that humankind is striving to apprehend what it is 
that lives on from personality to personality, that will fire the imagination and illumine human souls with a new light of understanding. This can be illustrated by a particular example. We turn our eyes to a figure such as the prophet Elijah. First of all, we think of the prophet himself. But the essential significance of this prophet is the fact that in a certain way he prepared for the mystery of Golgotha. He indicated that the Yahweh impulse is something that can be understood and grasped only in the eye. Elijah was unable to reveal the full significance of the human eye because for eye consciousness he represents a halfway stage between the Mosaic idea of Jehovah and the Christian idea of Christ. Thus the prophet Elijah is revealed to us as a mighty herald, an advance messenger of the Christ impulse, of what came to pass through the mystery of Golgotha. We see him as a great and mighty figure. Now let us turn to another figure. The West is accustomed to thinking of him as a single personality. I refer to John the Baptist. The West sees him confined within his personality. But we learn to know him as the herald of Christ. We follow his life as the forerunner of Christ, as the man who first uttered the words, quote, Change the disposition of your souls, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Close quote. He indicated the impulse that was to come through Golgotha. That divinity can be found within the human eye. That the Christ eye is to enter more and more deeply into the human eye. And that this impulse is near at hand. Now, through spiritual science, we learn the truth that is also indicated in the Bible. Namely, that the same individuality who lived in the prophet Elijah also lived in John the Baptist. He who, as Elijah, heralded the Christ, was reincarnated as John the Baptist, again heralding the Christ in the way appropriate for his time. For us, these two figures are now united. Eastern culture proceeds in a different way, concentrating on individualities and neglecting the single personality. Passing on now to the Middle Ages, we find that extraordinary figure who was born as if to give an outward indication of his special connection with the spiritual world on Good Friday in the year 1483 and died in early manhood at the age of 37. This figure is a phenomenal influence to his gifts to humanity. I refer to the painter Raphael. He was born on a Good Friday as if to show that he is connected with the event commemorated on Good Friday. What, in the light of spiritual science, can the West experience through the figure of Raphael? If we study this figure in the light of spiritual science, we shall discover that Raphael accomplished more for the spreading of Christianity, for the penetration of an interconfessional Christianity into human hearts, than all the theological interpreters than all the cardinals and popes of his time. Before the eyes of Raphael's soul there may have risen a picture of the scene described in the Acts of the Apostles, 1722-31. A figure stands before the Athenians and says, quote, You, people of Athens, worship the gods ignorantly with external signs. 
but there is the God that you can learn to know. This is the God who lives and weaves in everything that has life. That God is the Christ who suffered death and has arisen, thereby giving humanity the impulse leading to resurrection. Some did not listen. Others thought it strange. In Raphael's soul this event came to expression in the painting now hanging in the Vatican that is incorrectly named the School of Athens. In reality, this painting depicts the figure of Paul teaching the Athenians the fundamental principles of Christianity. In this picture, Raphael is given something that seems like a heralding of the Christianity that transcends denominations. The profound meaning of this picture has not yet dawned upon people. Of the other pictures of Raphael, it must be said that whereas nothing has remained of what cardinals and popes did for humanity at that time, Raphael's work is only today becoming a vital force. How little Raphael was understood in recent times is shown by the fact that Goethe, visiting Dresden, failed to admire the Sistine Madonna. He had heard from the official at the museum, who was only expressing the general opinion of the day, that there was something commonplace about the facial expression of the child Jesus. He was also told that only some dauber could have added the two angels at the bottom of the picture, and that the Madonna Madonna herself could not be the work of Raphael, but must have been painted over. If we look through the whole of 18th century literature, we shall find hardly anything about Raphael. Even Voltaire does not mention him. And today... Today, Raphael's pictures move people, whether they are Protestants or Catholics or anything else. Today we can see how a great cosmic mystery reveals itself to human hearts in the Sistine Madonna. We can recognize that through human hearts this mystery will carry its impulse into the future, when humanity will have been led to a broad and all-embracing interconfessional Christianity, such as we already have in spiritual science. This impulse will continue to work as a result of the fact that a wonderful mystery has inspired human souls through Raphael's Sistine Madonna. I have often said that when one looks into a child's eyes, one can know that what is gazing out of those eyes is something that has not come into existence through birth, something that reveals the depths of the human soul. One who studies the children in Raphael's Madonna pictures can see that divinity itself, an occult and superhuman reality, looks out of those eyes, something that is still present in the child in the earliest period after birth. This can be perceived in all Raphael's paintings of children, with one exception. The portrayal of one child is different, that of the Jesus child in the Sistine Madonna painting. Whoever looks into the eyes of that child knows that they already reveal more that can, than can be embodied in a human being. Raphael has made this distinction to show that in this one child, the child of the Sistine Madonna, there lives something that is already experiencing, in advance, a reality of pure spirit, a Christ-like reality. Thus Raphael is a harbinger of the spiritual Christ, who is revealed again by spiritual science. Through spiritual science, too, we learn 
that in Raphael there lived the same individuality who had lived in Elijah and in John the Baptist. We can understand that the world in which he lived as John the Baptist reappears in Raphael when we observe how his relation to the historic Christ event is indicated by the fact that he was born on a Good Friday. Here, then, we have the third harbinger after Elijah and John the Baptist. Now we understand many of the questions inevitably raised by those possessed of wider powers of perception. John the Baptist dies the death of a martyr before the event of Golgotha draws near. He lives through the dawn leading to the mystery of Golgotha, through the time of prophecies and predictions, through the days of rejoicing, but not through the period of lamentation and sorrow. When this same mood manifests again in the personality of Raphael, do we not find it comprehensible that he paints pictures of the Madonna and of children with such deep devotion? Is it not obvious why he does not paint the betrayal of Judas, the bearing of the cross, Golgotha, and the Mount of Olives? Any existing pictures of these subjects must have been commissioned, for the essential being of Raphael finds no expression in them. Why are such pictures alien to him? Because as John the Baptist he did not live to experience the mystery of Golgotha. Thus as we think of the figure of Raphael, we think how he has lived through the centuries and is still living today. We think of what remains of his work and what has already been destroyed. We reflect that all material things must eventually perish. Then we know well that the living essence of these pictures will have been taken into human souls before the pictures themselves will have perished. For centuries yet, reproductions will of course be available. But what alone gives a true idea of Raphael's personality, of what he was, what his own hands accomplished, will crumble into dust. His works will perish, and nothing on our earth can preserve them. Yet it is clear to us through spiritual science that the individuality in Raphael bears what has been achieved in one incarnation into the next, and we learn that this same Elijah, John, Raphael individuality appears again in the poet Novalis. We take his first proclamation, which, like a radiant sunrise, reveals a new and living concept of Christ, and we say to ourselves that Long before Raphael's works will disappear from the outer world, the individuality in that personality returned to bequeath his gifts to a new form, in a new form, to humankind. How good it is that for a time Western culture has paid attention only to the actual personality, that we have learned to love a personality simply from the fruits of a single life. And how immeasurably enriched must our souls feel when we learn that the eternal part of a human being passes from personality to personality. And however different these personalities may seem to us, the concrete facts that spiritual knowledge provides about reincarnation and karma somehow bring us understanding also. Humanity will profit more from details that can throw light upon individual cases than from general concepts. On this basis, 
much that is attainable only through intuitive vision and occult investigation, can be brought to bear on these matters. Then, finally, we will be able to turn our gaze to the mystery of Golgotha itself and remind ourselves that in the thirtieth year of the life of Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ entered into Jesus and lived through the mystery of Golgotha. When it is maintained nowadays that the Christ cannot incarnate in a physical body, it must be said that that has really never been asserted, for the physical body into which the spiritual Christ entered at that time was the sheath of Jesus of Nazareth. In that case it was not as it is with other individualities who build up their bodies themselves. The Christ descended into the body that had been prepared by Jesus of Nazareth. True, there was then union, but we cannot really speak of a physical incarnation of Christ. To one who has knowledge these matters are self-evident. We know that through this Christ impulse, as it streams into the different civilizations of humankind, something has come to the earth, has flowed into humanity for the benefit of all humanity. What went through death is like a seed of corn that multiplies and can make its way into individual human souls and spring to life. As we know that the body of Jesus of Nazareth had received the Christ being who by passing through death united himself with the earth, let us now ask, what will be the outcome of this when the earth has reached its goal and comes to its end? Christ, who united himself with the earth, will be the one reality on earth when it has reached its goal. Christ will be the spirit of the earth. In fact, he is already the spirit of the earth. Only then human souls will be permeated by him and humanity will form a whole with him. Now another question arises. We have learned that a human being in earthly form is to be regarded as maya, The form disintegrates after death. What appears outwardly as the human body is an illusion. The external form of the physical body will no more remain than the physical bodies of plants, animals and minerals will remain. Physical bodies will become cosmic dust. What is now the visible physical earth will completely vanish, will exist no longer. And what then of etheric bodies? They have meaning and purpose only as long as they have to renew the life of physical bodies, and they too will cease to exist. When the earth has reached its goal, what will remain of all we behold? Nothing at all will be there, nothing of ourselves, nothing of the beings of the other kingdoms of nature. When the spiritual is set free, Nothing will be left of matter but formless dust, for the spirit alone is real. But something will then have become a reality, something that in times gone by had not been united with the earth at all, with which human souls will now unite, namely the Christ Spirit. The Christ Spirit will be the one and only reality that can remain of the earth. But How does this Christ spirit acquire his spiritual sheaths? In the mystery of Golgotha, he descended into the sphere of earth as an impulse, as the soul 
of the earth. It does not happen in the same way as in human beings. But the Christ too must form for himself something that can be called his sheaths. Christ will eventually have a kind of spiritualized physical body, a kind of etheric body and a kind of astral body. Of what will these bodies consist? These are questions that for the time being can only be hinted at. When the Christ descended to the earth, he had to provide himself with something similar to the sheaths of a human being, a physical body, an etheric body, and an astral body. Gradually, in the course of the epochs, something that corresponds to an astral, an etheric, and a physical body will be formed around the originally purely spiritual Christ impulse that descended at the baptism by John. All these sheaths will be formed from forces that have to be developed by humanity on earth. What kind of forces are they? The forces of external science cannot produce a body for the Christ because they are concerned only with things that will have disappeared in the future, that will no longer exist. But there is something that precedes knowledge and is infinitely more valuable for the soul than knowledge itself. It is what the Greek philosophers regarded as the beginning of all philosophy. I mean wonder or astonishment. Once we already know, the experience that is valuable to the soul has really already passed. People in whom the great revelations and truths of the spiritual world can evoke wonder, nourish this feeling of wonder, and in the course of time this creates a force that has a power of attraction for the Christ impulse, which attracts the Christ spirit. The Christ impulse unites with the individual human soul when the soul can feel wonder for the mysteries of the world. Christ draws his astral body in earthly evolution from all those feelings that have lived in single human souls as wonder. The second quality that must be developed by human souls to attract the Christ impulse is a power of compassion. Whenever the soul is moved to share in the suffering or joy of others, this is a force that attracts the Christ impulse. Christ unites himself with the human soul through compassion and love. Compassion and love are the forces from which Christ forms his etheric body until the end of earthly evolution. With regard to compassion and love, one could, to put it crudely, speak of a program that spiritual science must carry out in the future. In this connection, materialism has evolved a pernicious science, such as has never previously existed on earth. The very worst offense committed today is to correlate love and sexuality. This is the worst possible expression of materialism, the most devilish symptom of our time. Sexuality and love have nothing whatever to do with each other. Sexuality is something quite different from and has no connection at all with pure, original love. Science has brought things to a shameful point by an extensive literature devoted to connecting these two things that are simply not connected. A third force flowing into the human soul, as if from a higher world, to which we submit, 
to which we attribute a higher significance than that of our own individual moral instincts, is conscience. Christ is most intimately united with conscience. Christ draws his physical body from impulses that spring from the conscience of individual human souls. The reality of an utterance in the Bible becomes very clear when we know that the etheric body of Christ is formed from feelings of compassion and love. Quote, what ye have done unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Close quote, Matthew 25.40 To the end of the earth's evolution, Christ forms his etheric body out of compassion and love. He forms his astral body out of wonder and astonishment, his physical body out of conscience. Why do we speak of these things at the present time? Because one day a great problem will have to be solved for humanity, namely how to present the figure of Christ in its relation to the various domains of life. This will be possible only if many things that spiritual science has to say are taken into account. When, after long contemplation of the Christ as conceived by spiritual science, an attempt is made to present the figure of Christ, his face will be found to contain something that can, indeed will, baffle all the arts. The countenance will express the victory of the forces that are contained only in the face over all other forces in the human form. When human beings are able to fashion eyes that radiate only compassion, a mouth not adapted for eating, but only for uttering true words that are the words of conscience, when a brow can be shaped whose beauty lies in the molding of the arch spanning the position of what we call the lotus flower between the eyes, when it becomes possible to accomplish all this, it will be understood why the prophet says, quote, He hath no form nor comeliness. Close quote. Isaiah 53, 2. What is meant is that it is not beauty that counts, but the power that will gain victory over decay. The figure of Christ in which all is compassion, all love, all devotion to conscience. And so spiritual science passes over as a seed into human feeling, into human perception. The teachings that spiritual investigation can impart do not remain mere teachings. They are transformed into life itself in the human soul. And the fruits of spiritual science will gradually mature into conditions of life that will appear like an external embodiment of spiritual knowledge itself, of the soul of future humanity. The end of Lecture 8